Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Andy Goodman, VP of Experience Design at BCG Digital Ventures. We talk to Andy about what is an insight and the methods and practices he employs to get it to fuel good design. We talk about his first experience with users failing to execute a task he designed and how that led to a moment of enlightenment. We cover what he values in a researcher and the role of a researcher to keep design authentic to the insight. He shares how and why the iPhone X is, for him, a case of advancement in design as it manages to put and keep the user in a state of flow. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, Andy. Hi, Karen. Nice, <laughs> nice to meet Nice to have you with us today. So, um, so yeah, I'm going to go right into it and ask you, what would be your definition of an insight? That's a very, very good and, again, difficult question. You, you're, you're good at asking difficult questions, aren't you? I can tell already. <laughs> um, the definition of an insight, for me, okay, so there are different levels at which our brains kind of come to conclusions or... or, or um, create like ideas, let's say. Um, and these are kind of well, well established. Um, uh, there are, there are th three different levels that have been established. Uh, deductive insights, inductive insights, and abductive insights. And, and far smarter people than me have explained what all of that means. But I'll try and summarize it a bit. So deductive is the kind of logical uh, inference that you make from observing things happening. Um, induction is pattern matching, mm -hmm. um, which you, you you generate an insight from having observed something happening elsewhere, and you can apply that learning to uh, to a to a different context. And then there's abductive reasoning, which is this very weird one, which is kind of like this leap of logic. Um, sometimes it's called guesswork as well, mm -hmm. and and. That actually, as a designer, plays a very, plays a very important part in, in, in our process. But the first two, and I would say probably inductive, um, inductive reasoning, is, is probably where we gather most of our insights from. Because mm. we, we observe a small kind of narrow slice of reality, in, 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 let's say, and then we infer a broader reality or meaning from that. Um, and, you know, th that's a fancy way of saying we do qualitative research and from a small number of interviews we can then infer a whole kind of pattern of behavior that mm. then informs what we do and and i would say that is a kind of a direct insight and then there's a sort of synthesized insight which is when you look at a load of those insights and you try and find patterns between them which lead you to new ideas and that's where this sort of abductive thing starts happening but you know, I, I could probably go on about this for an entire yeah. hour, but I think we probably should leave it at that. Maybe yeah. you can tell me what, what you think. <laughs> yeah, new idea. I like it. Um, well, we, I, think, I think what is fascinating to us as anthropologists is how everybody has a different way of rationalizing what insight is and in general with concepts like that. Um, so it's, it's nothing is like just understanding all these different perspectives um, and connecting them to the background of the person. It's, it's kind of, really cool uh i think 
I think I would say like nobody asked me until now what is an insight on this show. So <laughs> well, that's um, what happens when you invite a designer. Yeah. Um, okay. An insight. So for me, I think an insight is like you know where you're in a very dark room and you're casting light into a corner and you're seeing something. Yes. So I think for me, is an insight uh, is um, I think as, an, as 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 humans we walk uh, this earth in our cultures and and. Being inside a culture makes you normalize things to an extent that they become invisible. So you're you're doing things um, that are natural, but because they're natural, you are unable to really see them, or really they become invisible. And yeah. and through the act of looking at something differently, through all these wonderful processes that you've explained so far, they're just ways of casting light into these practices that we do them um, without actually really deeply thinking about them. That's actually very true, and that's a very good way of describing it. And it's, you know, we experience this many times in our lives when we go to a foreign country or a new mm, place. Yes, exactly. And so yeah. We feel like we're experiencing the world in a completely different way, um, and time seems to be elastic, yes. and we see things in more clarity. Yes. I think one of the challenges that we have as anthropologists when we're doing work in design is that that process of making the invisible visible is not something that, unless you are in a foreign space, that process is extremely accelerated. But when you are in a normal space, that mm. process takes time. And, yes. and, and takes, takes, yeah, I think it takes time because, um, and it's quite a challenge to kind of um, burn through these phases and be able to see that in, a, in an agile sprint, for example, of a few days. But, but that's, yeah. that's kind of the challenge of a lot of professions nowadays when this accelerated time of doing any sort of business um, I remember I was I was reading a book about Paul Sartre's um, way of of writing, and he de he was describing that process of months of sitting and laboring over a page and not doing anything else. You know, like having that luxury um, of construction of anything um, that I think so rarely we have nowadays in this kind of like super fast paced um, way of producing things. And yeah, yeah. Time to market is the is the kind of drumbeat that we pace ourselves to, and um, th this idea of moving fast and and breaking things, as it were, um, and and releasing unfinished products into the market and testing and learning and iterating. That's that's kind of the religion now in my industry, at least, or in the yeah. industries that I work around, um, and it's. It's actually very refreshing to to be somewhere where research is paid the due kind of uh, is given the credence that it deserves. Um, so often in in previous places where I've worked and in previous jobs, uh, we've had to fight tooth and nail to get the a, a decent amount of research time yeah. before actually start designing stuff so yeah. so actually where i work now um db due to the work of my great colleagues who, who've been there a lot longer than i have um we we've established a norm and a culture of research which is um great and it's it's totally totally um embedded into yeah. everything we do and our clients are very accepting of it they understand why we need to do it mm. i think there's something about the kind of problems we're tackling that they they feel that um, it's a, we're going to spaces they may not have much knowledge of. So they're more 
um, open to it. When, when you're working in a well-defined space, let's say for a bank or a telco, you know, in an area of finance or communication or something, they, they, they've already got tons of market research and focus groups and demographic mm-hmm. information and data. So convincing them to do ethno- ethnography or, or use insights is actually quite hard. Yeah. And that's the first thing that gets cut from the budgets. I can't wait to ask you more about how you work now, but um, I think it would be great also for us and for our listeners to understand a bit better your background um, mm. and how did you come to where you are today? Because you have a very kind of impressive path um, in this yeah. space. <laughs> impressive or, or meandering and gone all over the place. But yeah, thank you for, thank you for the, that, uh, that adjective. <laughs> um, so... I started my career actually, um, I actually went to art school, so I'm not really a scientist of any mm-hmm. shape or form. Um, and I only really discovered how much I loved science long after I left <laughs> education and then regretted it that I never took a greater interest in it because actually I, I found I had a deep love of science, but art was always my thing. Um, I think I was young and expressive. <laughs> And felt that my opinions were important and needed to be listened to. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what drives people to do art, I think. Um, so, I, I actually ended up um, in in the very early days of the web. Actually, I mean, we're talking way back, early to mid nineties, um, and it was a wild west. Anyone who <laughs> could move a pixel around on a screen could call themselves a web designer, and 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 so I, I ended up in that field and um and i and i kind of stumbled into design but found it was a good place to be um certainly you could actually make a living out of it which you can't from art even even my i have lots of good friends who are quite well established artists and even they even they don't really make a living so um so yeah the early days of web design um then i moved kind of weirdly around i went into the early days of the interactive tv industry in the late in the sort of mid to late 90s with Sky, um, British Telecom, they had it. They 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 created the first interactive TV services. Um, then I worked in the games industry for a while, um, working on the kind of early multiplayer gaming platforms and things like that. That was always a passion of mine. Still is. Um, you know, I still I still buy the latest PS4 <laughs> releases and what have you. Um, once a nerd, always a nerd, and. Um, and then, and then after that, I kind of shifted gear a bit. And I moved into more of the design agency world. Um, so it was kind of my early career was kind of in 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 um, let's say on the uh, client side, as, as I would have called it, as opposed to the agency side. Mm-hmm. So I got an, quite a broad understanding of different different industries of that, um, in those early years. And then I moved into um, design consultancy, and that's where I really first discovered about research and. Um, about ethnography, about service design, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the science in a, in a, in a way of, of designing things for humans. Mm-hmm. Because up to that point, it had been expressive. It had been about making think, beautiful things, which is still, which is important. But none of it up to that point in my career was based on insights about human behavior. I didn't even know that was a factor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I think some people still work in that way, which kind of totally amuses me um, because it's it's you're missing out on so much um, knowledge if you just 
design stuff yeah. for you. <laughs> Why do you think um, this is? I yeah. was I was watching um, a video of. Um, I know it might sound very cliche because whenever it's something like amazing, you 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 put Steve Jobs to say something from an old recording or Apple. But I I actually saw this little snippet of of, of an audio where he was talking about uh, when you need to design something, you should start with the human experience first, and then with the product last. Yeah. So he said any good product designer or any good person that works with product and strategy inside a company needs to start from the experience and then move to the product from there, not the other way around. And it made me think about this kind of separation or distinction between, you know, you're here working on product and you're on the other side working on research and the two at some point need to come into the ring and make sense of each other, you know? Although notoriously, he did fire all the usability experts when he came back to Apple okay. the second time. Now, but, but that, that, there's a lot more to that to be unpacked because it's not that he didn't believe in, in user insights. He didn't believe in usability testing per mm -hmm. se. He believed deeply in gathering insights about human behavior, but he thought it was a waste of time having specialists to usability test um, products. He thought that the designers and engineers should be doing that. Yeah. What, what do you do? What do you think coming from your, you know, dual background, right? Because you've been kind of like on both sides of the... Yes. Of the fence. Well, I'm a convert. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as soon as, as soon as I touched anything to do with insight... In, fa in fact, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the moment it happened. <laughs> um, so I'd never done a usability test. I'd never done any user research ever in my life up to this point. Um, and this was, I, swear, I, I think it was probably 2004, I think, at this point. That's, you know, a while back, but still quite late in my, you know, it was several years into my career. And I designed this thing. Um, I can't even remember what it was. It was a mobile um, interface for something. Um, way before iPhone, of course. We're talking about Nokia, you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, Nokia, like black and white phone. And we were doing a usability test, and I was sitting there, and I was what, and I designed this thing. I thought, well, it's very simple, it's very obvious, it's very easy. And then um, I was actually observing. I wasn't running the test because we were very hygienic. We didn't want the designer to do the test. Uh, we wanted the designer to observe the test, not um, try and influence the tester. Of course, as you know, as a good anthropologist, <laughs> uh, um, and. And I saw this person trying to execute this task that I designed and failing completely. And I just sat there and my, I just put my head in my hands. I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's not easy. So, and that was such a blinding moment of revelation to me. It was like, and it's so dumb to think it, to, to say this, but like to actually, you need to see it firsthand and experience it firsthand, someone failing mm. to do something that you've designed that you thought was really obvious and easy, and they don't even see where the button is. Mm. You know, what did that's, you feel? that's a very important moment. So I think mm. everyone has to have that experience. That's the moment of, of enlightenment in a way that people brains are not wired the same as you yeah and it's not that everyone's brains are wired differently of course they are but actually the designer's brain is wired in a certain way and non-designer's brains aren't mm -hmm. in terms of how you interact with an interface 
we have all of this, we've absorbed all of this knowledge over years and years and years of designing things. So the shorthand is there for us. We don't need the same cues. We can interpret something. We can experiment and intuit how something works without it being explained to us. Most people can't. Although there's an interesting kind of update that I would give you around the iPhone 10, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which we may be able to talk about a bit later if we have time. But it's very interesting and fascinating where Apple have gone in the last iteration because yeah. it's kind of abandoning all of their principles. And at first I was horrified, but now I'm starting to see what they're doing. So we'll leave that maybe for later. Okay. Um, so I, I really liked what you were saying with that moment of enlightenment, because I also come from the product space myself. I have a corporate background before transitioning to anthropology. Hmm. So I remember sitting in focus groups and feeling rejected that my concepts and my products were not being um, interacted with or seen in the same way as I did. And there's a certain dissociation that, that needs to happen or a certain allowance of the other to have power in the design with you. Because mm -hmm. if you are the one that controls the whole thing, of course you're going to feel rejected. Of course you're going to feel you have to like it because I've you know worked hours and months on this and I want to do the best for you but why can't you see it and yes. you know I think if you introduce the moment that you introduce the consumer eye in the process is very critical I think to that process of figuring out okay we're in this boat together building something it's not I am building and then I'm delivering it to you because this then this sense of possessiveness and this sense of feeling rejected or val validated takes over and it's very hard to be objective to your own work. Yeah. And, you know, I wouldn't exactly say the feeling was one of, of like despondency and rejection. It was actually a really positive moment for mm -hmm. me because it actually taught me something that I didn't know before and that I would then need to take into account. So I think the idea of the, um, of the, uh, emotional attachment to your design mm -hmm. is something I really try and discourage with my yeah. designers because it's not our design. Mm -hmm. You don't have any more ownership over yeah. it than anyone else in the process, which includes the user because yeah. the user creates the experience as, as much as the designer exactly. and the product. So, so tell us a bit more, Andy, about how you work then. What are the processes that you use in your current role to kind of provide um, a good platform for the voice of the consumer in the design process? Well, I'll talk about current role, um, but I'll talk, gen I'll talk more generally and then maybe specifically about the current role. So, you know, we, we do a lot of what we call co-creation, mm -hmm. which I'm sure you've heard that word before. Um, and this happens at many different levels um, within, the, within the kind of ecosystem, let's say, of the product. Um, we do it with, with different types of user. And you can probably categorize users in different ways, such as, you know, an end user, kind of administrative user, um, a, uh, you know, a product owner, um, and various other types of user that would, would, would want to interact in different ways. And actually, you can break that down into many more levels of, of detail, actually. But um, so we, we co-create with them. We co-create with our with our clients um, by bringing them into the design process. And you do things in, and there are many different techniques for mm -hmm. these. There are dozens of different techniques. 
Um, and it all depends at what stage of the design process you're at. You could be at a very early stage where you're just trying to, um, and I, I'm kind of taking this beyond the, the pure research insight gathering phase now into the, into the creation phase. Um, it's where you're trying to prioritize what's important. So, you know, simple card sorting exercises to, to um, look at what are the main drivers behind someone wanting to use or maybe not wanting to use the service and what's, what's turning them off, what their frictions are, um, as we call it, you know, what are the things that actually make it annoying to use something, which is actually in many ways a bigger driver than the, than the delightful moments that make us want to use something um, and, and trying to eliminate those. So we work um, in a way to build up a fairly detailed picture of what would motivate. And at what stage in the development process does the company approach you to get involved? Well, th this is a kind of a unique thing about DV. It's because we're, we're called digital ventures as opposed to digital products. Um, what, we, what our proposition is, is to create completely new companies mm -hmm. for our clients. Um, so in its purest form, the client comes to us with an amount of money to invest in something. <laughs> that something could theoretically be anything. So it's incredibly exciting. It's it's really um, it's really fantastically exciting in its purest form because then we have a mandate to go and explore a huge mm. range of, of ideas. And in fact, we do. We we generate massive amounts of ideas, and and we put them through this quite rigorous filter filtering process to figure out what is the best um, fit for both the the, the client in terms of what their business goals are, mm -hmm. what is feasible from a technology point of view, and what is the best kind of thing for the user or best best fit for the user. Mm -hmm. And then you build so, it up until what point? And, and um, we actually um, take this all the way mm -hmm. to launching the company and the product in the marketplace. Wow. So this, yeah, so this is, a, this is something that I've never experienced before or very rarely actually in my previous career. Because typically, as an agency or as a design company, you would come in for a certain period of time. Um, either, strange enough, you either come in very early up front when you're doing very exploratory stuff, or you come in quite a long way downstream where you're actually kind of redesigning an existing product. Those are the two mm -hmm. kind of ends of the spectrum and two very typical, you know, that they're the main places you come in. At DV, we actually encompass both ends of that. Um, yeah. Uh, we don't so much redesign stuff, although that does sometimes happen. We're not we're not completely in this green green field or blue sky or uh, if there are any other colors, cliched colors to call it. Yeah. Um, we're not ex we're not always in that space, but generally we are. Mm -hmm. What um, happens after launch? Does it come back to the company, or do you still kind of stay for a while more? It it all depends, actually. Um, so there are several things that can happen at that point. Um, the company can decide, you know what, this is really core to our business. We're going to bring this back into the mothership. Mm -hmm. And then it gets kind of absorbed, let's say, as a department or, or as a product, um, product group or, or something. Um, that's kind of like the least favorable option for us because it kind of it, it, it means we've succeeded. But it also means we've failed at the same time <laughs> because it means that we, we haven't this entity doesn't exist as a thing that we envisage it to be. Mm -hmm. But it still could be very important to the company. Then the, the other, the, the other um, option is that it floats off completely on its own, is, is launched as a separate entity, 
and um, is staffed up by um, either you know people from from our uh, client group and from people that we hired into roles, or sometimes people from our our side decide they love it so much they want to join this new yeah. company. So they they kind of migrate, they emigrate to <laughs> to this um, to this new new entity uh, as as uh, brave explorers. So and that does happen as well. So um, but typically the point at which we've actually got um, uh, an MVP in the market, a, a minimum viable product, um, or maybe even a bit further down the line, but certainly you know, early stage product, early stage growth of, of that venture, that's the point at which we kind of withdraw mm. hand over. Yeah. And that, that's built into our operating model. You know, yeah. part of the thing, part of the, you know, the, the second most important or second most common reason why startups fail is because they have the wrong team. Um, actually, no, I think it's the third reason. Second reason is they run out of money. So, yes. So the third most common reason is they have the wrong team. So part of our offering is to actually hire people in with specialist skills, with the right skills to run that company, which okay. is kind of interesting. As well. So you're like a startup incubator slash exactly. accelerator maybe space? It, that's exactly what we are in a way. because, but But what we do, unlike most incubators, is we actually take the main role in designing the initial product mm -hmm. and, and, and building out the company, you know, doing the company, like, uh, yeah, everything around, around the company build as well. So, so, yeah, because you seem to be going, you know, you're not, as you said, you're not at the beginning, you're not later on, you're kind of like following, um, following a full process of insight and development, which is great. Um, I wonder what does that mean for the type of researcher or the type of person that you would have in your team? What type of skills should they have or background or is that even important at all? Maybe you have other ways in which you judge a researcher valuable in that setting. We we actually get people from many different fields and actually I'll I'll talk more generally about about um, my industry because I think I think it goes even broader than perhaps the, cu the current model. Um, so design researchers are, I, I think, a, a quite particular breed, kind of peculiar breed in a way, because they have to straddle these, these two quite, um, quite disparate worlds um, <laughs> you know, of, of science and art, let's say. <laughs> you know, and of course, we know that there's this, always been this false dichotomy between the two. Um, between science and art, and um, there's something in our long cultural history where the, at some point they they got divided, but they weren't for a long, long time. They were all part of the same learning and, and knowledge. Um, so I, I think I think that a really good design researcher has to straddle both. They have to be um, comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty, and they have to be rigorous in their methodology and their approach. Um, and, and then, of course, they have to have all the soft skills that you need to do good research, which is about how you elicit the, the you know, real, really deep truths from a, from someone you're you're um, talking to. You know how you how you actually get them to express the underlying reasons for their yeah. behaviour, or at least infer it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's a kind of a very high level description. Um, but we have people coming from many different backgrounds. We have people that have come through a kind of classic 
UCD, user-centered design background or human factors. We have people coming from psychology. We actually have a lot of, a lot of our researchers actually also come from a sort of business school background as well, because as you probably are aware, um, due to the uh, um, wonderful uh, PR efforts of, of various design companies, um, design thinking is now a very um, hot topic yeah. <laughs> in business. So it actually becomes part of the curriculum for, for certain um, for certain uh, business studies, for business students, because um, it's actually one of the main um, things that plays into strategy around around product is design thinking. So, so we get people from that background as well. Um, we also get people that have kind of crossed over from classic kind of um, uh, experience design or, or, or interface design, um, and we also get people from service design backgrounds. So, uh, from some of the uh, so in the US, SCAD, for instance, uh, Savannah um, Savannah College of Art and Design mm -hmm. um, is. That's what it stands for. Uh, is, is one of the, the main schools for service design. Uh, there's also Carnegie Mellon. Um, that they're they're one of the um, eminent places for learning that. And there's a lot lot of places in Europe and, and the UK yeah. as well that are strong there. So we get people from those kind of all those kinds of backgrounds. Um, we also, uh, interesting enough, and this is a little bit unusual and unique to DB. We get a lot of people coming from industrial design mm -hmm. backgrounds which I found that very interesting and very refreshing because for many, many years, pretty much everyone I worked with um, as, as colleagues came from digital, like had been digital like centric for many, many years. So it's actually really good getting that um, physical like design person because they're, they have a different tool set, yeah. a, a different skill set. They, they may, you know, the research process might be similar, but they bring a different kind of mentality to it, which I find really refreshing. What about social scientists? Have you ever worked in your career or in your present role with social scientists? I mean, not specifically or not, 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 not to my knowledge. Let's say. <laughs> I think everyone that, everyone that I've, um, you know, I, I guess, I mean, if you include, I don't know if you include psychology in that, but I mean, we, we, A social probably, psychology. Yeah, sure. Okay. So we, I, I have worked with people that have had psychology degrees, but social science specifically, I don't think so. Um, uh, it's it is interesting um, you you proposing that because clearly that this, this I you know we've we've um, um, we've adopted possibly and possibly abused terms from social science within design research. So we talk about ethnography a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm fully aware what real ethnography is, and we don't really do real ethnography. You know, we we're not like those um, those Danish guys or Swedish guys back in the '60s who would go and live with a family, mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> like for a month. We yeah. don't do that. You know, at best, what we're doing is workplace shadowing, yeah, or yeah. or, or contextual inquiry, mm. which are related, but they're not the same because. In both of those situations, you're not becoming invisible. Mm -hmm. And of course, as I, as from all little I understand, and you'll probably correct me because I'm fairly ignorant of this. As far as I understand it, in ethnography, you're, you're, the idea is to kind of become unobtrusive and invisible in the environment so yeah. you can observe natural behavior. 
Yeah, it's building intimacy with people, you know, like also when I do a, try to do ethnography in business, the biggest challenge is how do you accelerate the process of building intimacy? Because when you're talking to users, uh, but you haven't managed to build that intimacy, they tell you what they think you want to know. So there is a specific way in which they rationalize to themselves and to you their answers because you are still a stranger to them. Mm. So which I think makes it as an anthropologist, when you're doing ethnographic research, that is the part that on one side is interesting because you kind of start, any data is data. <laughs> so even if you understanding that what they're telling you is not necessarily what they think or how they behave, but there is a certain reason for um, why they choose to distort the, that information to you in that way, you know? So for example... Yeah. We did this project in the fintech sector in here in New Zealand around money and debt. And, and people in, in this culture here, they have a very strong sensibility when they speak about debt because it's very strongly associated with their standing in society, their sense of self, and it tells a lot about them if they are in debt. So them being extremely reluctant early on to speak to you about their real behavior around money makes us try to dig deeper into the social stigma around money, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So even if they're not honest, there's still data there that you can understand. But mm -hmm. I think with intimacy comes the real power of, of understanding context, right? Because they start behaving around you as they would normally behave around their network, yeah. around their friends. Um, and that gives you so rich data to work with when it comes to the usage of a product or the perception with a brand. But that type of intimacy, like deep intimacy, comes with time. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and you finding a way of inserting yourself into their natural environment rather than bringing them to a lab setting or meeting them for a coffee in a, co in a cafe or you know any sort of ritual that provokes reflection but is disconnected from their real life. I've, I've done a research with um, a research proposal for this video game company um, here in New Zealand that, that builds games that are built on impulse, you know? Those games that you play like the Candy Crush on Facebook when you're bored or when you're stressed. So you can't really plan those type of activities. And also it's very difficult to post-rationalize them. Yes. You know, like what, what really drove me to that? All that dopamine um, triggers, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So I had to build a methodology where I could understand context uh, but without actually being able to be in the context because then I would be influencing those moments of boredom or excitement or you know so it, it's quite challenging but it's also quite fun I think one of the and now I'm going to end this because I'm interviewing you <laughs> but uh, I think one of the key things when you are an anthropologist interested in working in business is to kind of uh, not be a prisoner to the rigor of ethnographic work the way it is in academia and kind of be flexible being in that space of, you know, time acceleration and, and finding way, ways to solve it rather than use, looking at it as a barrier, you know, and saying, oh, I only do one year research or I only do six months ethnography. No, you can do 10 days ethnographic work, but then how can you do it in a way that you can still drive um, a, a rich um, contextual data out of it. Like, I mean, and if you're an anthropologist that finds pleasure in this type of challenges, then it's cool. Like the business yeah. environment is where you're, you should be kind of exploring work. <laughs> so we did a really, you know, away quite a while back, I did one of the most interesting research processes or projects that, that I've ever done 
was um, we were trying to explore the future of like of of business mobility, like devices. From and this is way before, yeah, again, way before the iPhone and the iPad. And um, we wanted to co-create with with um, real users, and we set up this environment, and we built. We actually went and got a load of props, um, like an aircraft seat and cabin and a car cab, you know, like a car, yeah. <laughs> front half of a car, basically, and various other business contexts. Because what we wanted to do, we wanted to put them into those physical environments mm. and get them and, and trigger all those muscle memories yeah. that they have, how awkward it is. Because back then you had these big laptops and you had these tiny little aircraft seats with these terrible little tables that yeah. fold down. Yeah. And it was just horrendous trying to work on a plane or in, mm. in your car. And, you know, we wanted them to really engage with that physical um, process. So mm. it triggered all of those memories. Um, and, of course, it wasn't true or real, but it was very insightful because, you know, often you, you know, those physical things actually... Mm really make it more, you know, that the, they trigger really specific memories. So it, that, that was really, I mean, incredibly elaborate and took so much time to set that up. But still, it was it was a great process. Yeah. And, and um, it, it gives you richer data than if you just put them in a, on, a, um, on a chair in a room, uh, asking them to remember mm. how discomfort feels like, you know? Mm. Yeah. Indeed. Um, yeah. So... Uh, yeah, I've had a, a a long and interesting career of 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 bringing these insights into the work, and I, I think the question you asked right at the beginning was how does it then um, apply to design throughout the life cycle? Yeah. Yes. And, and I said that's a really difficult question. I it's been kind of going around in the back <laughs> of my my mind for the last forty minutes, and I still don't really have an answer. <laughs> but but I'll try I'll try and answer it. Go I'll for try it. and head somewhere towards an answer. Because actually, what happens often is there's this cliff that the insights all fall off mm-hmm. <laughs> at a certain point. Yeah. And um, due to lack of time and lack of energy and lack of kind of, and, and, and also there having to be a human handoff from one to another, um, sometimes a lot of those insights just fall. And it's actually quite hard to keep them current and in your mind when you're designing because you end up having to go back onto on, on you know relying on on well-worn like mm-hmm. tropes or, or patterns in order to get the design done quickly and and the problem with research and and humans and human insight is that they're kind of messy and complicated and actually understanding what the answer is to to the question that the research poses is very tough mm. actually often often it's almost like an insoluble problem because it's it's you know what it's saying is that no we don't want this at all this is horrible and then the reality is no we but you need to do this this is the only way to do it and then you you kind of go well they'll just have to live with it <laughs> we'll make it as painless as possible they'll just have to live with it and you know when you when you get to that point in a way, the research has then just been thrown away mm-hmm. because you're just having to get to the finishing line and making that, you know, keeping those, keeping those, um, 
suppositions or those or those insights that you've gathered from research, keeping them there mm. um, as the driver, as the design driver behind what you're doing, yeah. is is tough sometimes. Yeah, because things will steer you in different directions. There'll be the realities of what the technology can do and what the business wants to do and you know what the designer likes mm -hmm. that's always the worst thing what the designer likes <laughs> you know we're, we're taught to have taste and opinions and then we have to submit those to the opinions of, of some some person some non-expert somewhere just because they they found that you know just because that's what they told a researcher that sometimes feels you know again that's that that statement you made about it being kind of like depressing and, and, and deflating to find out. But so all of these things come into play and it takes a real effort of will to keep those design drivers really based on, on the insights. Um, and, and we often have to kind of go back and say, you know, listen, listen guys, you know, talking to the client and to, to, you know, the business leaders and whoever and, and project managers, product managers, you know, this is what the research is saying. We've got to take heed of it, and we will suffer further later mm. on down the line if yeah. you don't. One more, one more little thing. Yeah, one last thing because we're uh, we're trying to to um, respect the timeline that we have. So let's yeah. do one more little thing, and then we can wrap well, it up. I wanted Tell to talk me. about the yeah. I wanted to talk about the iPhone 10. Yes, yes, exactly. Tell <laughs> I me. I wanted to get back to it because it was there on my mind. I've, I've got one in front of me, and Tell um, me. so when I got it. I can't remember when it was. It was. It wasn't that long ago. I I was appalled. I was actually appalled. I I thought Apple, you have betrayed all your design principles. Okay. What what did, where did that come from? That came from. So if you remember the original iPhone, mm -hmm. it was totally intuitive, discoverable interface. You picked it up, and you knew how to use it almost immediately. Mm -hmm. Because they had done away with all complexity. It was completely linear. You had a bunch of icons on the screen. You tap an icon. You go into an app. You close the app. You go back to the home screen. Mm -hmm. That was it. That was pretty much it. <laughs> there was nothing else there. And it was amazing. Because when you looked at it, you went, oh, of course that's how it works. And then you also thought, of course that's how all touchscreen phones should work from now on forever. Because it was so, it was it was obvious. Yeah. And then gradually over the years, they've added all these other things, these kind of, what I would say, hidden interactions, learnable interactions, not not obvious interactions, but ones you have to learn. Learnable isn't the right word. We need a word to say that to mean that you have to learn it. Unintuitive. I don't mm -hmm. know. Whatever. Okay. Um, but these were kind of gradual changes, and you kind of accepted them that, you know, now you had multitasking, and if you, you know, swipe, you would go to something else, and, you know, whatever. And then with the iPhone X, because they wanted to get rid of this goddamn button, <laughs> they suddenly had to put in all of these hidden interactions to do even the most basic things, um, because there's no home button. So everything becomes gesture control, mm -hmm. pretty much. To do any meta navigation, as I call it, you, everything becomes gesture controlled. And I thought, you have now made a phone that my father, or even someone of my age, probably, because I'm a designer, so I'm not that young. You know, they they won't understand it when they see it. They'll actually, and I had to as well. I actually had to look up online how to do something mm -hmm. with my with my new iPhone. I was like, how do you do that? And I was like, I can't, I can't figure it out. 
how do you, yeah, how do you, um, how do you close a tab? Mm-hmm. I just couldn't figure it out. It wasn't obvious. I had to look it up. Yeah. Or I can't remember what it was. Something. And, and, and I was infuriated. I said, you've betrayed everything. You've now made a difficult interface that people have to learn. And then a few weeks ago, it sort of dawned on me <laughs> as I was using it. And I was in this total state of flow uh-huh. that yeah, this is like the best phone I've ever had. Yeah. And, and they, what they realized is that the power that they were in, like withholding from you by not putting these things in previous generations, they were, they wanted to unleash that power now. Mm-hmm. And now everything, every other phone looks like something from the stone age. Yeah. Because, because everything is so fluid and quick and you can do so much. You had to go through that learning curve to get there. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like they've realized that their, their audience is now okay with that because actually we've all grown up and we've all been living through the mobile digital yeah. age for long enough. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's okay now. We'll take the training wheels off and you can enter this new universe. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, pretty damn cool. What, what was it from that button that kind of prevented that state of flow or did not enhance it, enable it, do you think, now looking back? Because, um, because it was all very one-dimensional. What, and what by that I mean... There was, pre- until they, even, even with the multitasking, which they didn't have initially, everything was, you had to go in, 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 and then out, 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 yeah, yeah. like in steps, mm-hmm. because that's the obvious way. Then you don't get lost. Yeah. You don't have to learn it. Go in, and then you go, and every time you press it, you go back one step, and you go back one step. So it took away any, um, let's say, meta navigation, which is jumping from anywhere to anywhere, mm-hmm. which actually is how our brains really work. But... If a click does something that you expect it to do, you, you don't find it too bothersome, actually. Yeah. This whole thing about number of clicks being a problem is not, is not really a problem. So, um, and, and it worked, and it was very good for a long time, but um, it, it did have this flaw. Yeah. You know? and, I, yeah. and I recognize that even when it came out. I actually wrote a, an article about it, how it's, it's still got this, it almost gets to this stage of flow that just, just doesn't quite get there yeah. <laughs> because of that linearity and now you can go anywhere you want yeah. like instantly yeah seemingly I, and and we're getting close to this place that i call <laughs> i have called in the past zero ui which is this kind of tongue-in-cheek term but it's it's about this kind of um and i'll i'll use the word magical even though my good friend claire Owen will 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 punch me again for saying it um uh, she'll she's the only one that'll get that reference so um it's this kind of magical place where technology just does what we want it to do without mm-hmm. us having to think too much which is this predicated like future world that we've been trying to build for a long long time yeah, yeah. and it's a bit grandiose to say the iphone 10 is there but it's kind of starting to get there where yeah. it's very much in tune with our bodies and our minds mm-hmm. and it does what we want it to do without without frictions and without barriers so yeah. I, I i i've totally changed my mind about it i think it's amazing leap forward it just even even someone who spent his whole life designing stuff it, it took yeah. me by surprise yeah. no i i totally get you with both references i think when it comes with the connection that the phone has with us it's as close as it can possibly be to transhumanism you know to technology being a part of our biology and mm-hmm. kind of being embedded into our own sense of self in a way that that kind of takes away any sort of separation so i think if yeah. there's any 
any technological product that, that is close to that nowadays is the phone because it is an extension of our own physical body. Um, so being able to kind of get even closer to that, to the point that you engage with it as if you're engaging with your own hands, your own legs, without friction. Um, yeah. yeah, I definitely get it. And that thing with magic, for me, it's interesting because I'm, I'm personally a, a geek of science fiction and fantasy uh, worlds. Um, and world building in that space. And because for me, magic is just science that hasn't been uncovered yet. Like, yes. That's how... That was off talk. Do you know, like technology <laughs> is magic to a certain extent to the one that is initiated into how it works. For me, looking how a line of code transforms into something alive, it's magic because I don't know how that works. I don't know how you do it. Um, so, you know, magic and wonder is just like, for me, a, a prequel of of something, no? Like you, you start yeah. with the magic and then you end up with a system that you can understand 100%, no? And then it yeah, becomes that's science. That's a good rebuttal. That's a fantastic rebuttal. I'll have to use that next time. Right? I get haunted I get for using that word, that useful. <laughs> but, but it's good to have that in mind. Andy, this has been like an amazing pleasure. Both me and Angel have really enjoyed talking to you, but unfortunately our time is up. <laughs> no, no. So um, thank you so much for being with us today and we hope to see you back soon. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.